Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of July 24th, 2017. On this week's show, we'll be joined by Slate's Jim Newell to discuss Jordan Spieth's amazing come-from-ahead victory at the British Open and to assess whether this fantastic young golfer is, in fact, cool. We'll also scrutinize Cleveland Cavaliers point guard Kyrie Irving's trade demand, where he might end up landing, and whether puppet master LeBron James is pulling the strings behind the scenes. And Slate's Ben Mathis Lilly will be here to break down what brought down Ole Miss football coach Hugh Freeze, a scandal that involved the Freedom of Information Act, an offensive lineman smoking weed in a gas mask, and a phone call to an escort service from a state-issued cell phone. Stefan Fatsis is off again this week doing all of the things that I just listed. Um, but this is where it ends. He'll be back in the seat across from me for next week's show. Filling in is Hang Up and Listen favorite, Mina Kimes, who has a dog named Lenny, a senior writer gig at ESPN the Magazine, and is the co-host of The Morning Roast, which is both the name of a scent in the Yankee Candle Home Classics collection and a radio show that airs Sunday mornings from 9 to noon on ESPN Radio. Check your local listings. Hello, Mina. Hi. I like that you led with the dog. That was the appropriate order of my priorities. (laughs) I'm really rooting for you guys to beat out the Yankee candle and the Google autocomplete. (laughs) That'll be the sign that you've made it. I was surprised that there wasn't a podcast already on iTunes with that name, like a coffee-themed pie. Maybe that's telling, actually. Maybe that's worrisome when you're the first. But um, the yeah, candle we, we, people, we are, the candle people are very <laughs> litigious, uh, so I would be careful. Oh, uh, it's good to be back. I can't believe you called me a favorite. I, I think I've been on the show like three times, twice, maybe. Uh, I mean, nobody likes anyone else who's ever been on this show. So <laughs> we're we're all very glad to have you back. Uh, let's talk about golf. Jordan Spieth went into Sunday's fourth round of the British Open with a three-shot lead over his fellow American Matt Kuchar. Cooch. The 23-year-old lost that lead on the front nine, that being Spieth, then hit a drive so badly on the 13th hole that it hit a spectator on the head. He recovered to make a spectacular bogey on 13, then rested the lead back and won the Open by playing his last five holes and five under par, A finish that I think Johnny Miller of NBC, um, who appears to be suffering from recency bias, called the greatest closing performance in the history of major championships, maybe in the history of Mm. of all sports. Um, (laughs) Spieth has now won three legs of the Grand Slam, joining Jack Nicklaus as the only golfers to win three majors before uh, their 24th birthday. With us now to discuss young Master Spieth is Slate's Trump Care and Lynx Golf correspondent, Jim Newell. Hi, Josh. How are you? I'm good. You must be really happy we're talking about golf. I'm very excited. <laughs> I'm wearing my, my uh, shirt and tie and blazer today, like a proper golf correspondent, too. So. 
Thank you for that. The thing that's really fascinating about Spieth is he is known, and rightly so, for having this amazing record of accomplishment at such a young age, including in major championships. And that's credited to his steely character and poise. And yet he now has also like a fairly remarkable history of dramatic, uh, very bad performances on Sundays at majors, the difference being this time that he managed to turn it around. Is that like an interesting contrast or is that just like how every golfer is? Yeah, he has a weird ability. I mean, a lot of, you know, good closers in golf, you'll never really see any emotion on their face whatsoever. But, I mean, Spieth is sort of a madman. I mean, every shot that he doesn't like, he is, you know, talking to himself, talking to his caddy. He's freaking out. You can see him getting very anxious visibly. But he's able to— He, like, had his head um, and his hands on the first hole on Sunday. <laughs> yeah, no. He was, like, already he was in the in the deep rough off the tee on the first hole, and he was like, this is crap. You hit a good shot. It's crap. You don't get rewarded. I mean, he just gets very anxious. He talks to his ball a lot. And yet he's able, like, he just has this this crazy will to to overcome all of that and still stay in the moment, which is pretty rare. Usually when you see someone like him have the first 13 holes that he had where he clearly wasn't playing well, and then you see them start to get rattled, it, it's just insane that he was able to bury all of that and then go, what, birdie, eagle, birdie, birdie? I mean, that's mm. it's it's very... You don't really have you haven't had a closer like that in a long time in golf. Jim, can you put what he's accomplished in context for me? Because after yesterday, I saw my former colleague Danny Cannell tweeted, "Wow, love seeing Jordan Spieth do what he's doing. More impressive than Tiger without all the hype. Humble and classy." <laughs> so, setting aside the uh, many things there, you could talk about. The more impressive than Tiger jumped out at me. Um, you know, how do they actually stack up at this point in their careers? So their statistics are pretty similar right now by age, but that's going to change pretty quickly, I think, because Tiger won his first major, the 97 Masters at 21. Then his next one was the 1999 PGA. And then in 2000, he won the U.S. Open, the British Open, the PGA Championship, and then he won the Masters again in 2001. That was the year he had the Tiger Slam, where you have all four majors at the same time. So I think they're they're equivalent right now, but this was sort of at, when Tiger was about 24 is when he started to go on his run where he just won every tournament. Yeah, this is like definitely an abuse of statistics where they're making <laughs> a big point about how Spieth, um, you know, won, won three majors before the age of 24 when Tiger like started winning every major yeah. at the age of 24. Yeah, I think it's just, you know, I think the game is a little bit more competitive now too. I mean, if you look at Jordan's best year in 2015, he had five wins. Tiger had a lot of years where he had seven, eight, nine wins, and that started around, you know, this age. Right. Hmm. I was actually expecting you to respond with some statistics about his humility in class. Um, <laughs> yeah. Didn't really address my question, but that's fine. Uh, that was helpful, too. Well, he's so weird. He can switch it on and off. You know, he'll be, like, crazy on the golf course and just, you know, like, not quite cursing, <laughs> but just sort of bitching the whole time. And then, you know, he, once it's over, he'll do his nice young man shtick where he's like, I want to, you know, thank Matt Kuchar, who's just a swell guy, and he'll, he'll get there, you know. So he, he's just a very different guy um, on the course and off the course. Well, as Jim knows, because he's a horrible Hill reporter when he's not moonlighting <laughs> as a golf correspondent, <laughs> the press, um, the image that they create of public figure is just based on how they're treated. I said public figure. And so obviously Jordan is like the nicest 
young man ever because he's so, you know, he's so yes, sir, no, sir, with everyone in the media. It sort of reminds me of Roger Federer, how if if you've watched Federer over the years, you know that in every match, he's always like cursing at himself in German or just like yelling out and like, you know, excitement or anger, you know, when he blows a break point or he gets one. And every match, the commentators still say it's like a rare display of emotion from Roger Federer. <laughs> right. It's like, actually, yeah. he does this every time. And it's it's really the same with Spieth. I think the uh, the industry is really invested in this idea of Spieth as like their ideal son almost, you know, the, the guy with su- these incredible manners who's always, you know, uh, going to save the game and all, all the great, you know, honor that comes with it or whatever. But he is. It, He's going to impress like all the other dads at the country exactly, club. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. When he takes them, yeah, for cotillion or something. But like he, I mean, there can be a lot of dissonance when you're watching him on the course and he's just freaking out and holding his hands up and, you know, just screaming and talking to his ball. And, and you still have the announcer sort of say like, what a class act, you know? <laughs> so it doesn't really, I don't know, it doesn't really add up, but they're invested in making that Jordan Spieth. Hmm. It reminds me of, uh, in some ways, Brady, you know, Tom Brady is this legendary trash talker, but that rarely gets mentioned. So we've got Spieth, Brady, Federer. What do all those guys have in common? I can't quite put my finger on it. That makes us call them classy. They're very all very handsome. Um, <laughs> so one of the exciting moments from Sunday was when he made the eagle putt on 15, right? And he points at the hole. And he says to his caddy, Michael Greller, go get that, which uh, Mina and I were discussing is like extremely Kirk Cousins of him. Um, like when Cousins said, you like that after uh, leading his uh, Washington team to victory over the Bucks. Um, they're both like kind of dorky, I would say. Yeah. I think I think things that are um, you know the height of coolness to hardcore golf fans <laughs> are, are you know uh, the height of dorkiness to everyone else. Like, what are the other coolest things to ever happen in golf? Like, the one that comes to mind is the Tiger Woods chip at the Masters with the ball tumbling in with a Nike swoosh, followed by the most incredibly awkward high yeah. five with Stevie Williams ever. Yeah. And then Jordan did the you know flying chest bump uh, throwing. The wedge at the Travelers last month was that cool? Was that cool to to normals to non golf fans? <laughs> Explain to us how you felt, like how it feels to be you when a golfer does something, quote unquote, cool. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's riveting. I mean, when that, I, these last two tournaments that Jordan Spieth has won, he's like done to golf fans who are not cool. The coolest things you could do to celebrate. Uh, I mean, but if you look at things like, I don't know, was Tiger considered cool? Like, he would do some extremely dorky stuff. I mean. No, I don't think Tiger was ever cool. And I right. think, like, all of the, mm-hmm. like, Mina, like, all, all the dime store psychologizing about Tiger and his downfall wasn't all of yeah. it based on the fact that he was always a huge nerd and has been overcompensating. Yeah, all everything he did was sort of because he hadn't had those experiences when he was young or whatnot. I do feel like we look at Tiger through kind of cool colored lens. And and in fact, as you're saying, he was pretty dorky. Spieth, I have a lot of trouble with um, deciding whether or not he's cool, mostly because he just reminds me of guys I went to college with who would show up in class with no preparation and then the last second ask me if they could use my notes. He just like bothers me on that level. But I was doing a little investigation to decide if he was cool. 
I looked at his Twitter, which is not cool, although on the Super Bowl, he tweeted sports in all caps, which I thought was kind of funny. And then <laughs> yesterday, there was this moment also where... Correct. That's also true. accurate yeah. and correct. Very sports writery thing to tweet. He also, yesterday at the Open, he gave his caddy a nut shot, which is kind of funny and also, again, reminds me of the guys I went to college with. So I, I don't know if he's uncool so much as that he's just young, maybe, and we're conflating those things. All right. Here's another piece of evidence I'd like you to weigh in on, uh, Jim. Uh, in the New York Times, I think it was Karen Krause's write-up, she mentioned that one of the things that Greller, the caddy, did to psych him up uh, on Sunday when it looked like things were going out of control was pointing out that um, Spieth had posted on Instagram a photo of him hanging out in Cabo San Lucas with Michael Phelps, Russell Wilson, Dwight Freeney, Michael Jordan, and Fred Couples. (laughs) And Greller was like, you know, you're up there with those other athletes. Like, you should think of yourself like that. But the way that I interpreted it was – Remember that you're cool because you got to take a vacation photo with Michael Jordan, which by definition means that you are not cool if you think that it's cool to like Mm. remark on that photo and like what a notable thing it was. Yeah, I did not know that. Greller showed, showed him that photo. I mean, that's that's just extremely dorky, too. Like, remember when you took that photo with all those other cool people? You're cool. Now go make some birdies. So, uh, I mean, I guess when I, – I don't know. When Jordan was, like, going that nuts after that 13th hole, I guess, yeah, you, you settle for some pretty, you know, what, whatever works to pick you back up. When you're feeling, like, a little bit down, Mina, do you look at a picture on your phone of you hanging out with Russell Wilson? No, I go back and listen to my three hang up and listen appearances, actually, when I'm feeling down. Uh, that's a great compliment. And I think also just good strategy for uh, self-care. Um, Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you have not convinced me that Jordan Spieth is cool. I'm not sure I've convinced myself yet either. He's fun to watch, though, isn't he? Can we, can we agree in the middle ground that he is fun to watch? It was fun. It was a very good golf time. It was one of the good golf times. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Jim. Yep. Thank you. Jim Newell writes about Congress for Slate. He's also available for podcast appearances to talk about golf. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Before we get to Kyrie Irving, I'd like to let you know that in this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Mina and I will discuss Michael Phelps. Insert enormous set of air quotes here. Racing a shark. <laughs> and whether Ryan Lochte would have accidentally charted a path directly into the shark's mouth. If you want to hear that conversation, please join Slate Plus for the new low price of just $35 a year or $5 a month, and you can become the proud owner of a Slate tote bag, and you can get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. On Friday, ESPN's Brian Windhorst reported that Cleveland point guard Kyrie Irving had told Cavs owner Dan Gilbert that he wanted to be traded, with his preferred destinations being San Antonio, New York, Miami, and Minnesota. Windhorst reported that the Cavs were disturbed that the trade request had become public, 
and added that LeBron James had been blindsided and disappointed to hear word that Irving wanted out. Mina, I don't know if I could like this story anymore. <laughs> that I already like it. It has occasioned so much theorizing about what's going on behind the scenes in Cleveland, which I love. It's also really fun to think about where Kyrie could end up, what's going to happen to LeBron as a result. And, and a league that had just seemed increasingly fait accompli-ish um, with the Warriors having locked up the next several NBA titles, this is the kind of behind-the-scenes backstabbing and drama that I didn't know that I desperately needed. It's interesting to me you mentioned the Warriors aspect of this because I think this actually makes it more fate accompli-ish, right? And that's why part of me, well, part of me was obviously titillated and love this and also scream content in some, you know, the part of my brain that has to do radio on Sunday mornings right when this happened. The other part was like, oh man, the Warriors just must be laughing. And, you know, if there was ever any feeling that the Cavs might be able to come back next season and go toe-to-toe with them, that is gone. It is all gone. That team is just going to steamroll through. And that's why I kind of found this a little bit hard to enjoy, I think, from a basketball perspective. Well, I mean, you didn't think that the Cavs were going to compete with the Warriors anyway, did you? Well, the... I guess the part of this story that made me reflect upon that, the small part of me that thought that, was that so much of this drama, I think, hinged on their failed efforts to trade for Paul George. Because I do believe if they had gotten George, that they would have had a shot to compete with them. And it seems like they got a lot closer. You know, there's been a lot of reporting coming out in recent days from some of my colleagues at ESPN that, that they've gotten a lot closer to getting Paul George, I think, than anyone knew at the time. I mean, there was, I think, a three-team deal involving the Nuggets, right? Yes, Where, yes. Yes, so we can break that deal down, which I think would have been a lot better for the Pacers and what they ended up with, that would have left Cleveland with George, in which case I think we would have had a very competitive finals. And it's hilarious that it is July and we're already talking about the finals, but really, <laughs> like, what? That is the NBA right now. But First, the- I'm excited because I've never <laughs> broken a deal down. That sounds like very radio. I'm very... <laughs> I'm very jazzed for that. But th- my favorite, favorite aspect of this is that there is like a very Kyrie Irving and the Chamber of Secrets aspect to what's mm. been going down because it feels like there are just so many amazing stories that have been locked away. And there is this uneasy yes. sort of balance um, where everyone was being polite to each other. And now they've started getting real just because all of the pretenses dropped. So now we're like learning about how everyone actually feels about each other or allegedly feels about each other. There was this Stephen A. Smith coming out and saying, I don't know if I actually believe this, but what I've been told is Kyrie Irving (laughs) believes that LeBron James is the one that leaked this. It's just so fantastic. I love that you just paraphrased the intro to the real world. What happens when people stop being polite and start being real? Because that is like, this is the real world. At some point, they've all been doing these like, um, you know, when the camera just interviews one person in a closet when they should have had a house meeting. It feels like the Cavs just never had a real world, like a house meeting to talk about like what is going on this off season. And the Stephen A thing is hilarious too, because well, obvious for obvious reasons, it's hilarious, but I, I don't really know. I mean, I don't under- really know what Kyrie's intentions are. And I'd be curious to hear what you think, because some people seem to be saying he wants to be his own man. He wants to get away from LeBron. And then other people, and this is more in line with my thinking, 
seem to believe he sees the writing on the wall, which is this team is about to implode. Yeah, I think it's got to be a combination of both. And I think the latter factor, the idea that LeBron has a really good chance of leaving and he just doesn't want to be beholden to whatever LeBron does. He wants to be in control of his own fate to the extent that's possible. I think that that probably pushed him over the line when what you mentioned at first is the idea to be his own man. I'm sure that's been around forever. And it just took the sense that things probably are not going to work out in Cleveland long term for this team, that that's what it took to push him over the top. Um, But the thing that you said about the confessional really resonates with me because um, there's been a lot of going back and scouring old Kyrie comments. (laughs) And it turns out that everything he was saying during the finals in those like, you know, dark room with like the trophy gleaming in the background and all of those interviews turns out to have been a completely accurate reflection of the exact opposite of his feelings. Like he talked about um, having a conversation with Kobe Bryant and wanting to learn from Kobe how not to break up like a relationship, like what happened with Shaq and Kobe. I think Kobe would probably be a good person to advise you on how to break up a superstar (laughs) relationship. Maybe that's what happened. And, you know, he just has talked consistently about, oh, I really had to learn, you know, about, you know, playing with another great player and it's turned out great and blah, 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 blah. And (laughs) uh, I think he was being honest about everything except him having come to terms with, you know, the feelings that he's already always had. Yeah, I I think that's what makes me believe, well, a few things make me believe it's more about, the fact that it's become increasingly obvious to everyone in the world, I'm going to say the world, this summer that LeBron is not long for Cleveland and, you know, Kyrie doesn't want to be the last guy at the party because the four teams that comically leaked as places that he would like to go despite having zero leverage and, you know, no, no, no Drake laws um, included San Antonio, which you don't go to San Antonio if you want to be the guy. So True. that doesn't really reflect that theory about sort of his mindset, which is why I, I really believe when we we say Cleveland is a disaster right now, that's a little bit dramatic, right? So because it was, they've had a very tumultuous offseason with the Griffin stuff, you know, their GM, David Griffin, not getting paid and leaving um, with them failing to execute these trades with the constant persistent rumors about LeBron that he hasn't denied. And LeBron's non-denial pretty much indicates that it's a strong possibility. I, I believe all of that has to have been weighing on Kyrie. And, and how could it not? Because if he stuck around another year you know, they don't really have any leverage. Then they only have one deal left on his contract and suddenly he becomes a much less attractive trade piece. So right now he has more options, I think, amongst the rest of the NBA than he will ever have as a trade piece. I'm looking at this list of four teams now, (laughs) Mina, and they're almost like comically in the four corners of the United States, like RIP the Seattle Sonics, but um, I guess Minnesota is the, the, the closest that we're getting to the Pacific Northwest on this list but it is it's really funny how how he's basically indicated i want to go to four teams that essentially have nothing in common with each other yes like the, yes <laughs> i have a strong desire to go to like four extremely different kinds of teams like new york would be the choice where it's like i just want to be really famous and lose a lot mm. um miami is like 
I really want to get away from LeBron, and I will do so by reenacting LeBron's career path um, and playing for, LeBron, playing for LeBron's old coach in, a, in nice weather. You already mentioned the San Antonio Popovich idea. And Minnesota, if they could manage to get him and have a trio of him and Jimmy Butler and Carl Towns, that would be really interesting, and it would not change the balance of power in the NBA, I think, this season. But yeah. if we're, we've been talking about Boston as really being the place that had the amount of talent and assets that if they didn't screw it up, they could really be the one team that could assemble enough to challenge Golden State. Well, um, in this imaginary scenario, I think – Minnesota, strangely, would be that team that could challenge. Imagine if Minnesota was in the East. And that's actually whenever this kind of thing happens now with these stars, you know, and the teams they want to go to, I always wonder being a plebe, you know, well, why wouldn't you want to stay in the East? You can go to the you can go to the finals. You have a clearer path to the East. And you realize that the NBA now is in this, I don't know, there's probably a word for it, like um, some kind of horrible trap that kills itself where all of the as the t- more and more talent amasses in the West, more and more talent is drawn to the West because of the nature of the way teams are built. So it's actually compounding the problem of imbalance instead of making it better. So in a way, it's not surprising to me, right, that he seems likely to en- end up on these better Western teams. The Spurs I thought were interesting because, as I mentioned earlier, I now view the league as does this team have any shot at the Warriors? Any news piece is like, okay, well, how does this affect the Warriors' ability? So the idea of Kyrie on San Antonio, I thought was like, huh, well, maybe that team could take on the Warriors. But obviously, that's a total pipe dream. All these teams are pipe dreams. None of them have any assets that Cleveland would want. It's ridiculous that we're even talking about it, to be honest. Well, the scenario that Kevin Pelton of ESPN mentioned as making the most sense is with the Phoenix Suns. Yeah. Um, They have Eric Bledsoe, who's a young point guard. And I love how this always gets mentioned. He is a clutch sports client. (laughs) Clutch is run by Rich Paul, who's LeBron's agent. Just all of the like behind the scenes sort of machinations here. It is really fun to think about. In my mind, the absolute best scenario here would be if LeBron has had a long-term plan to fuck over Dan Gilbert because I am team fuck Dan Gilbert for life. Um, Because of the Comic Sans letter he wrote when LeBron left, um, I really, really was happy for LeBron and for Cleveland that he won there and was Mm -hmm. really devastated that that had to involve Dan Gilbert being rewarded or made to feel that he had somehow done something right And so just the hardcore implosion of this franchise after LeBron has come in and provided that city and that team with a title to the extent that that could be accomplished via making Dan Gilbert look as dumb and horrible as possible um, would just bring me endless joy. Mm, So you think... LeBron is like Cersei with the wildfire underneath the scepter or whatever, a septum, <laughs> and no he, just, he just blew the whole thing about. up. You I've, don't watch Game of Thrones? Wow. No, I How do. How function I, in 2017? I do have a sports podcast um, and have not seen Game of Thrones. Does it bum you out that we could be wasting 
what might be one of the last peak years of LeBron's career? Um, well, I think there are a couple things that could happen. So Kyrie apparently wants to be like Mr. Hero Ball, like uh, Kobe. Uh, I think he has probably more of a claim to compare himself to Kobe than his former backcourt mate, Dion Waiters, who famously nicknamed himself Kobe Wade, which is <laughs> the greatest thing that's ever happened in sports. Um, so Kyrie wants to be like Kobe. Kobe demanded trades like every other week, and he never ended up leaving yeah. L.A. And he said horrible things about Shaq. Shaq said horrible things about him, sometimes in, uh, uh, on stage in uh, rap verse form. But they, uh, you know, they could manage to mend things and he could stay. Like that is a possibility that we need to consider. Kyrie's under contract for a couple more years. Um, so they have no like pressing need to trade him other than the fact that it would be extremely awkward um, to have him around. So if he gets traded, I think the fact that every member of the creative class in the NBA, that I think <laughs> is the analogy, Mina, is that they're all like leaving the rust belt of the Eastern Conference just to go to uh, uh, major uh, coastal cities. Um, I think that the fact that the Eastern Conference is still like a like, you know, rusted out uh, <laughs> pre-industrial <laughs> landscape means that, I mean, Le LeBron's year could be wasted to the extent that they don't have a chance to beat the Warriors. But if they manage to get Eric Bledsoe, you know, they'd probably still be the Eastern Conference favorite or at least co-favorite. Like, do you really feel that confident that the Celtics or uh, the Raptors or anybody else would, would be able to beat LeBron and Kevin Love and whoever else they managed to assemble. Derek Rose. Uh, you did just give me an idea for a book, which is to write a hillbilly elegy style uh, <laughs> nonfiction work about the Eastern Conference. What really motivates these people to play in this division? Um, I don't. You're right. It's And that's the amazing thing about LeBron James. And that is why we view everything that happens in the NBA through the lens of LeBron James, because he doesn't need that much. I mean, it's great. You know, it, it's certainly bet the team is better with Kyrie than with, say, Derrick Rose, which is a dystopian reality that appears to be rapidly approaching. And we're all going to have to come to terms with um, sooner rather than later and not him as a backup if Kyrie leaves, which is just absolutely insane to think about. But yeah, well, whatever team LeBron is on is the favorite team to unseat the Warriors. And that's just the way it is in the NBA. I would just end by saying this, like, we didn't really have the opportunity to learn anything new this season if the status quo was maintained. And if Kyrie leaves, we can learn a little bit more about LeBron. Like, can he at this age with this talent around him still win the East? I mean, one of the more amazing accomplishments of his career, among many, was just taking that team full of garbage to the finals in 07 against the Spurs, where, you know, his teammates were uh, Drew Gooden and Daniel Gibson and Sasha Pavlovich and Sadrina Silgauskas. I mean, this year's Cavs minus Kyrie are a thousand times better than that, but it would still be fun to watch LeBron, like, try to meet that challenge at a more advanced age. 
you calling them a team full of garbage. That's why my hillbilly elegy style book needs to be written. So someone can get in touch with the real people of the Eastern Conference. <laughs> J.D. Vance and J.R. Smith have the same number of letters. So it's, it's, it's written in the stars. Mind blown. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. For our next segment, I'm going to welcome in my colleague, Ben Mathis Lilly. Hello, Ben. Hey, Josh. I want to give the listeners a little insight, Ben, into our editing process over here at Slate.com. On Friday, you wrote a blog post headlined, The Coach from the Blind Side Just Resigned Over a Scandal Involving Escorts, Bongs, and a Man Named Houston Nutt. And I just wanted to let people know what my contribution was to that headline. It was to remove the quotation marks that you had placed around the name Houston Nutt, which to my mind made it seem like he was not a real person when he is, in fact, very much real and is not, for instance, one of Boss Hogg's lesser known colleagues on the Dukes of Hazard. I don't think we can conclusively say that Houston <laughs> Nutt is a real person. Did you know that his brother, who's also a coach, is named Dickie Nutt? No, no, come on. You, you made were, that up. You were following this. Everything was believable until Dickie Nutt came onto the scene. Uh, so as Ben very ably summarized in his headline, the head football coach at the University of Mississippi, a guy named Hugh Freeze, he was a high school coach that coached Michael Orr, the blindside guy. He resigned last week after it was discovered he'd made a phone call to an escort service from a phone he'd been issued by the school since Ole Miss is a public university that call log was discoverable via the Freedom of Information Act. As we know, Houston Nutt has an extraordinary command of FOIA law. And as part of Houston Nutt, um, Hugh Freeze's predecessor as coach at Ole Miss, as part of his lawsuit against the school, he was suing the university, alleging that they were trying to scapegoat him for a separate scandal. Um, Houston Nutt and his lawyers FOIA'd Hugh Freeze's call logs. So the previous scandal was one involving recruiting violations. And that was uncovered in part last April when an Ole Miss player, a top offensive line prospect named Laramie Tunsil, um, his social media accounts were hacked on the night of the NFL draft. And the hacker posted both a video of Tunsil smoking weed out of a gas mask and screenshots of text messages in which an Ole Miss employee appeared to be arranging to pay Tunsil cash under the table. That led the NCAA to come in to investigate. The school tried to play off everything the NCAA found and said it was all Houston Nutt's fault. And then Houston Nutt sued, which led to FOIA, which led to the escort calls, which led the school to discover a, what was it, Ben? A pra- pattern? A pattern I of behavior? A, a pattern of conduct. It a was pattern a certain of pattern conduct. of conduct. <laughs> a certain pattern of, pattern of conduct that did not become uh, public because... Hugh Freeze resigned before it could be. But we can imagine that it involved, let's let's just take a wild guess, lots of calls to escort services. <laughs> that seems to be the implication. 
Uh, and that and that brought into to, um, into play the famous moral turpitude clause mm. in, uh, in his contract, which is always you know it's a college football story when the moral <laughs> turpitude clause is invoked. This is the most college football, and let me amend that. This is the most southern college football story to have hit the internet in at least the last few weeks. But can you just, for you, Ben, like what makes this? so quintessentially college football? Uh, Well, I think it's the fact that uh, it involves a man named Houston Nutt. Uh, (laughs) That's that's really the top line for me. Um, And a vengeful man named Houston Nutt (laughs) Um, who's, who's, as you mentioned, employing uh, America's public records laws uh, in order to take revenge on an ostentatiously uh, Christian coach. Um, Michael Orr went to uh, Briarcrest, uh, Briarcrest Christian School in Memphis, um, and Hugh Freeze, uh, as many of his detractors have, have gleefully pointed out in, in, in the last week or so, uh, was known for posting uh, psalms. Uh, and other Bible passages to his Twitter account. Uh, and and uh, apparently one of the other things he was doing while he was posting these these Bible passages was uh, calling escort services, uh, presumably to arrange uh, escort services for himself. <laughs> I, what's so incredible, and it's very hard for me to talk about this story without referencing Game of Thrones, but Josh put that <laughs> off the table earlier. But um, what's amazing to me, a story is like the equally arcane backstory, Ben, which is that Houston Nutt <laughs> took what had taken him down in the past and then used it like a great coach as a weapon here, which is that in 2007, when he was the coach at Arkansas, I think it was a fan who realized yeah. that his own phone records could be FOIA'd and found that he had been texting with a female sportscaster like a thousand times, leading to nuts resignation. Glad I love that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that actually, you know what? I think that you've actually identified what is the most college football aspect of this story, which is that it starts with a just a person, just an yes. Arkansas football fan using public records law to bring down a coach. So Houston Nutt's successor at Arkansas, this just gets better and better. His successor at Arkansas was Bobby Petrino, who got brought down because he got in a motorcycle crash with a woman who is not his wife, tried to cover up the crash, and went to a press conference with the most, like, team color appropriate red face of anyone that I've ever seen and, and the, an enormous neck brace. The neck brace, I believe, is actually the neck brace Bill Murray's character wore in the movie Wild Things. Uh, I think he actually had that actual neck brace shipped to him, yes. And the only Ole Miss coach of recent vintage who has not, you know, kind of stuck his nose into this current scandal is the current LSU head coach, Ed Ogeron, uh. whose most notable moment at Ole Miss came when he stripped off his shirt to reveal his barrel chest and threatened to fight his own players. <laughs> uh, and Josh, and maybe you will have this on the tip of your tongue, but didn't a, a, a yet another previous Ole Miss coach um, castrate a bull in front of the team at one point? That was Jackie Sherrill, I think, when he was at Mississippi State. Mississippi State. All of our listeners in Mississippi are just going to be outraged that you've confused you two (laughs) participants in the Egg Bowl. All right. I I hate to get um, a little bit serious here, but let's talk about what happens when you castrate a bull. Now, um, (laughs) 
the things that have been involved, the supposed scandals here are, and there there are many, but let me try to enumerate as many as I can. Paying players. I think none of us here believe that like um, NCAA, you know, football players should be like amateur, unpaid, pure as as driven snow type dudes. So that's one supposed scandal. Another supposed scandal is like, um, you know, calling get, calling a prostitute. All right, <laughs> an escort. An escort. You know, maybe they just want. Maybe it was a girlfriend experience thing. I don't know how things exactly. how things work with Hugh Freeze. But like, if you have to take someone to a big gala yeah. in Tampa, and you're Hugh Freeze, and sometimes you just need an escort service for that. That's a, a, a possible reason this could have happened. A gala in Tampa. I like where this is going. <laughs> yeah. All right. So contracting uh, for some sort of uh, sex work. That's another part of it, a part of this. Another part is. Smoking marijuana and that being exposed as mm. like a thing to blackmail someone because how right. how dare a college student smoke marijuana? So like, what? Where is the scandal? <laughs> Remind me what the like horrific scandalous behavior is here that's been exposed? Yeah, I mean, what is the thing that we're like the most outraged about? To extrapolate, uh, to extrapolate too seriously, as you called for, it, it does uh, remind one of uh, you know the kind of things uh, people say about you know the the drug war, the United States drug war. It's like these massive consequences for you know an act, which you know in this case was also smoking marijuana, uh, which is probably not. Uh, the worst thing that Laramie Tunsil could have done as a, a freshman or, or whatever on a college campus. Well, I think that the context here matters, right, which is that Hugh Freeze came into a program that had struggled a lot before he showed up and then shocked the college football world with his <laughs> recruiting prowess. No, but but that, that matters, right, because – if they were bad and if their fortunes hadn't changed, I think we'd be looking at this very differently. There have been a lot of programs, coaches, um, spurned nuts out there <laughs> waiting for this because it, there was this, always this sense with this guy, like, how is he doing this? What is Hugh Freeze up to? How did he get, you know, Robert Kandice or Laquan Treadwell? What was he doing? So all of, when we're talking about these scandals, I think, you know, the recruiting and the money and whatever – it sort of all factors into it's we view it through i think the prism of his unearned success right and and i think that uh that reminds me i think sb nation uh reported uh, that according to a recruit who Hugh Freeze was recruiting, um, this is the recruit's version of the story. The recruit said, "Hey, you know, I, I, you know, I go online. And I see that that people are accusing you of of cheating, of paying players." And in according to this recruit, Freeze said, "Well, you know, people made accusations against Jesus too." <laughs> that seems cor- that seems correct. I don't know why I don't know why that upsets you. Uh, so you're right in that that certainly that there's there was a lot of focus on uh, on what he was doing, and a lot of people, you know, admittedly, including myself, were kind of gleeful about seeing him take the fall for paying the players, even though you know I personally don't really have a problem with with uh, you know Laramie Tunsil or anyone else getting four hundred dollars, you know, to to put on their dining you know dining hall pass card or whatever it is that, that to they buy a, did. To buy a better bong, I think, is, <laughs> is what he really needed. So um, just some guidance for Hugh Freeze, just a past apology that could help him rehabilitate his public image. Even though I was not involved in the procedure that took place, I take responsibility. If this incident was in any way not perceived as proper, 
by those who love Mississippi State, then I apologize. That was Jackie Sherrill apologizing for allowing the castration of a bull <laughs> in front of his Mississippi State football team. That's per uh, the New York Times in 1992. Um, we should have mentioned the context there. It's because they were playing the Texas Longhorns. Oh, and that makes did, sense. It did lead them to victory. They beat Texas 28 to 10. I mean, I think the most important aspect here, Ben, that we haven't talked about and that you are extremely familiar with as a fan of a team that has a big rival is that the all-consuming most powerful force in college football fandom is schadenfreude. Oh, absolutely. Yes, especially, 100%. Especially in the SEC, um, other programs, and this is because of like the gray marketness of college football and how everyone is che- every team cheats except you think that only it it's only your team uh, is the one that doesn't cheat and so when another team gets exposed it makes it confirms your biases about how everyone else is bad and wrong and your team is pure and the best um and i mean tattoos ben it's all about Ohio. It's all about Ohio State and tattoos. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, I even modify that in a. I feel like a nod to uh, um, to uh, the real the reality. I my only my statement is my team maybe I think cheats a little less than the other teams. Yeah. I'm not. I don't even think they don't cheat anymore. I mean, famously, Charles Woodson was walking around campus in a, a mink coat uh, in 1997. Uh, you know, before. He got a professional paycheck. How did he get that coat? Um, I so I'm going to say that they they cheat more discreetly and uh, and with a more <laughs> distinguished uh, a sense of Michiganness. Well, that's that's because their academics there are so amazing and robust and superior that they've figured out a way to cheat where it's not even really cheating. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, no, it's 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 the schadenfreude um, and it's the kind of the ridiculous outdatedness of the rules creating these situations where we have these massive scandals around around things whose underlying behavior is, uh, uh, you know, it's it's not that the cover up is worse that the crime is there's actually no crime. There's no crime. But you right. have to admit, like college football and college basketball as well, you do it is does feel like there's a preponderance of these guys having these scandals compared to other sports or professional sports and it when you think about it it's kind of not super surprising because think about what it takes to be successful you have to be charismatic and good at recruiting you have to be absolutely cutthroat and then you have to love power so when you think about all those things it's not really surprising that it tends to draw a certain kind of person which by the way is what makes Nick Saban and his success and his relatively clean slate all the more amazing in my mind. I think it's just Nick Saban is the most thorough person in in the you know in human history, and so whatever. <laughs> I mean, I think he just has actually built the wall between himself and the you know the unscrupulous boosters so so thoroughly that he'll never be discovered. I mean, I guess Hugh Freeze's biggest crime is like not modeling himself after that Paul Pierce photo where he's got the two, the two phones. I mean, <laughs> Nick Saban in Alabama would just never make that mistake. You've got to imagine Nick Saban wearing one of those travel vests where there's like one phone for each like five-star recruit. Let's move on. Ben, I want you to stick around for this next, uh, this next segment. Okay. Um, instead of afterballs this week, we have something that is not afterballs. That is all I'll tell you. Um, before all of the good people at Vice Sports were laid off on mass uh, last week, RIP Vice Sports, um, they produced a really fun collective thought experiment 
pegged to last week's O.J. Simpson parole hearing. Um, and that experiment was what sports things that happened before the age of social media would have broken Twitter <laughs> if at replies and GIFs and anonymous racist trolls with cartoon frog avatars had existed throughout human history. Twitter launched in 2006, so this is limited to things that happened more than 11 years ago, and Vice, for some reason, limited itself to events that took place after 1976. So for our purposes, I don't think we need to limit ourselves to the 1976 to 2006 window, Um, but that's what they did. Um, So I'm going to just read off the ones that their staff nominated as like social amazing moments on social media that never happened. Tanya Harding taking out Nancy Kerrigan. That's an obvious one. Um, the malice at the palace, the fight um, uh, where Ron Artest went into the stands. Brandy Chastain rips off her shirt when the U.S. women win the 99 World Cup. Pedro Martinez knocking down Don Zimmer. Uh, I don't really agree with that one. <laughs> um, the Michael Jordan shrug game in the NBA Finals. Shaq signing with the Lakers, uh, the Bill Buckner play, Dale Earnhardt crashing at Daytona, the death of Lynn Bias. And then my favorite one was from David Roth, because I think what I'd like us to think about uh, is stuff that transcends just the like sports part of your Twitter timeline. Like obviously the OJ Bronco chase would be number one, just because everyone in the world um, who is like sentient would be writing about that and thinking about that. But the one that, that David Roth nominated was Lisa Left Eye Lopez of TLC burning down Andre Risen's house because that would cross the streams mm-hmm. on Twitter in a way that I think would be extremely productive. Um, Mina, you've clearly thought about this. What um, events would you like to nominate for uh, breaking Twitter and why? Okay, the one that comes to mind for me immediately is Carrie Strug, right? And, you know, the the landing on one leg and then the, I want to say Bella Lugosi, but that's not his name. Bella Caroli. (laughs) (laughs) I think Bella Lugosi carrying Carrie Strug would have definitely been way better. That would have really crossed the streams. There would have been so many good memes. (laughs) Um, Just because... The Olympics, I feel like, are uniquely calibrated to capture the entire world's attention in a way that, you know, an individual sport is not. Maybe maybe not necessarily Twitter niche in particular, although I actually, you know, the Olympics this summer pr- did take over Twitter in a way, and I think there weren't even moments like this necessarily. But that sort of perfect storm of nationalism, triumphalism, a small white girl doing something good. Like <laughs> she is very classy, by the way, the way that she and, handled that whole thing. <laughs> uh, Carrie Strike, a huge trash talker. I've heard. No, um, it, it just, it's so gifable to write. Like, can't you just see people sharing that over and over and over? So that, that is the first one that comes to well, my the mind. Michaela Maroney face was like, a crazy social media moment. And that wasn't nearly the, um, the event that Carrie Strug was still shows up. I mean, I think I saw spam, one of those spam ads on the side of <laughs> websites last week that was like, look what her face is doing now. <laughs> oh, Lord. oh man. I went to college with, um, Sarah Hughes who won uh, the, skating gold medal. Lady, the skating lady. Yeah. She skating won a gold medal. Lady, yes. Yeah. That was like the most famous person in my college class, which very exciting for me. 
But um, yeah, that's mine. It's not like Harding and Kerrigan where you'd have like, it would be days and days, I think of, you know, just endless discussion, but I think it would really just take over the world for an entire day. My number one pick is also an Olympics moment. And that is, can you just think of the amazing memes here? Jesse Owens beating the Nazis at the 1936 Olympics. People loved creating um, parodies of that like downfall movie that like Hitler um, getting mad and sending people out of the room. This was the actual Hitler (laughs) being upset about a real thing that happened when Jesse Owens showed him that the master race was not all that, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Twitter broke, broke all records. Just think of the trending topics. Jesse Owens, Nazis, Hitler, etc. <laughs> <laughs> Can you top that, Ben? I mean, one could say that Richard Spencer is still feeling the effects of Jesse Owens' 1936 uh, gold medal. Uh, Off the top of my head, uh, and and but also, I mean, but inspired by the ones you guys brought up, uh, you know, 1992, um, Derek Redman, a sprinter, carried over the finish line by his father, who ran out of the stands. It's still one of the most incredible things I, I remember seeing. Uh, the band is on the field play. Oh yeah, that's a good one. The pine tar incident, um, Doug Flutie's Hail Mary. But I think that the winner of the five that I could think of in, in the last two minutes is um, um, Nolan Ryan kicking Robin Ventura's ass. <laughs> that is a good mm. one. Yeah, that is something that um, could be a gift today. And I'm sort of surprised that it is not interjected into more um, Twitter conversations. Just there is a lot of occasion, Mina, and a Twitter exchange to insert a gif of like an old man just kicking a younger man's ass. <laughs> sort of the inverse Pedro Zimmer, which by the way is a gift that I, I'm also, upon being reminded of it and looking at it and laughing, um, because it is really the most hilarious image of all time. I don't know why we don't see that gif more often. I mean, what he does with his head, the spin on it, the angle, the rotation is so, so joyful to watch. Um, I'm gonna start using that gif more often. I, mean, uh, I think going back further, um, I was trying to come up with something that happened before 1980, um, and the best that I could do is uh, is 1908 World Series Merkel's boner. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Merkel's boner would have gotten a lot of discussion on 1908 Twitter. I believe that was in the regular season, but Merkel's boner, okay, is still an amazing thing that would have. Uh, uh, been great at any at any moment. So I think the number two all time moment behind, or maybe number three behind, um, Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding and the OJ Bronco chase would have been the Janet Jackson mm. moment and the Super Bowl. Oh yeah, yeah. Another one that I think would have been good, um, but this is like kind of boring because it's just actually a news thing is the earthquake in the 89 World Series. Mm-hmm. Sorry to bring it down with like a super, a super boring. <laughs> Where's the correct, gift there? Yeah, correct moment. <laughs> it was all shaking and everything. Um, slightly, slightly more fun one would be um, Rick Monday rescuing the American flag at Dodger Stadium in 1976 from 
um, the people that ran on the field and tried to burn it. Mm. Patriotism. Or Gif. Uh, Ohio sports anchor Carl Monday confronting the <laughs> masturbating Ohio State fan in the library. <laughs> I don't know if that there. Is... I don't know if there would have been a moment where we all would have <laughs> gathered around Twitter. <laughs> The unless, jokes would have been amazing. The memes, <laughs> the jokes, the hashtags. Unless that's the, what we're thinking. Unless the panopticon allowed us to uh, view, all view that con- confrontation <laughs> all at once. We're getting there. Um, all right. I think I think that's a good list. If if uh, listeners out there have ones that we missed, email hangup at slate.com. And that is our show for today. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Mina. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. You should also check out Mom and Dad Are Fighting. It's a weekly podcast in which hosts Gabriel Roth, Rebecca Lavoie, and Carvel Wallace discuss all aspects of parenting from toddlers to teens. On last week's show, they answered a question from a listener whose babysitter's email address is freaking him out. What was that email address? Go to slate.com slash mom and dad and subscribe to find out. You can listen to the latest episodes when they post each Thursday. Our producer is Patrick Ford and our intern is Max Cohen. I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty. And thanks for listening.